almost irresponsible how good it is, but luckily the only people who'd actually reenact it are also already bores themselves. That's from Ben Travers of IndieWire talking about succession. That's right. There's no excuse right now, folks. We're still self-quarantining. I hope everybody's staying safe and staying at home. So you've got to get around to all these great shows. And I've heard Succession's been excellent for since it debuted back in summer of 2000 and uh, whatever the hell year we are, 20, 2018. And so now I finally got on it. I watched the entire first season. I binge-watched it to review for all of you. And the first episode of season two. There are 20 episodes in total. So I'm 11 down, nine to go. And of course, by next week, I'm sure I'll have finished the entire season. So we got a review coming of Succession on HBO Plus. 35th anniversary of Back to the Future. That's right. I mean, absolute family classic. One of my favorites. My elder two boys are old enough to watch it. So we not only knocked out Back to the Future, but Back to the Future 2. And we're going to pretend that Back to the Future 3 never happened. In addition to that, Carrie, the great Brian De Palma horror flick from 1976, which I'd never seen. Considering my love of 70s movies and Brian De Palma, that's a notable omission for me, so I finally took care of that. And in honor of Brian Cox chewing the scenery, Mount Rushmore, one of my favorites, over-actors. We're going to do a Mount Rushmore of over-actors for all of you, some good options out there, and a total recall from 2011, the films from 2010, when the King's Speech won Best Picture. A little bit of housekeeping first and foremost. Uh, the OG, Dan Stanzik, original producer of got married. Happy trails to Dan and his wife, Jenna. Uh, we know about love in the time of cholera. How about love in the time of corona? I mean, awfully different, but obviously happy for Dan. And shout out to Rick Passmore, again, part of the original gang of Cinephile, who sent me a wonderful gift set here. He sent me Heat on DVD, special edition, Lego Batman movie for the boys, and a couple of packs of hockey cards. So very, very nice of my boy Passmore, who um, is among the many who had told me I should watch Succession, that I would love Succession. And uh, thanks to Charlie Franklin as well. I mean, Cabby mentioned it, Rosillo mentioned it, but Charlie Franklin texted me. Here's actually what pushed me over the edge. He just said, you're going to love it. And I said, why? I, I don't, why do I care about a bunch of rich white people? Like, this is not my thing. He said, no, it's your sense of humor. So once he said that, I'm like, okay. And clearly he was right. And he knows my sense of humor because it's awfully vulgar and lewd. Uh, Apple Podcasts, where you can rate and review. Please do give us some love. W.C. Dwightstone, again, is, is crushing us. He's the one who called me a liberal hack. And he did it again. Listen, W.C., I already read your review once of you hating me. And now you don't have to do it again. I'm not going to read your review again. I got it. I hate you. I, I understood. Uh, Poppinham69, who? Please bring back trivia questions to win prizes. Last trivia quiz was to win a cinephile hat. I did win the prize, and I have DMs to prove it on Twitter. I was around the time you got fired from ESPN, so I never received my hat. Listen, I, what do you want me to do? I just mentioned Dan Stanzik, right? Go ahead and tweet at Dan Stanzik. Danny may still have some merchandise from the past. I mean, all the merchandise we had was from ESPN. Cadence 13 has not delivered, like, new cinephile goods. So, you know what? Go ahead and tweet Danny. Maybe he has a couple of hats still lying around, and you can get your hat, okay? Uh, also, we got one in Doc Lou, Iowa. He's great. He always, he always uh, chimes in here. He loves In the Heat of the Night. Great Oscar-winning performance by a British actress sounding Southern. Sydney is also amazing. Speaking of racial movies, Norman Jewison also did Soldier Story. Denzel's coming out party. Great script and cast. Excellent point, Doc Lyre. You're right. I've never seen Soldier Story, but I'm aware that it was Jewison, and I'm aware that um, it's uh, Denzel's coming out party. D Black 519, being a fellow movie lover, I love listening to this every week to escape from all the harsh realities of what is going on in the world. Can you please do a Mount Rushmore best Eddie Murphy movies or best 80s action movies? All right, done. Next week, Joe, we got Mount Rushmore Best Eddie Murphy Movies. And after that, what the heck? We'll do 80s action movies, okay? You want you have ideas? I'm here to listen. Uh, the Bad Guy 127 also chiming in. Thank you. And, of course, Mark Simon, the aforementioned, he also uh, tweeted, Adnan does a very entertaining show, mixing reviews, stories, interviews, and creativity, along with banter with producer Joe. Get on Twitter. Your fan club awaits. I do wish the show would bring back an early successful segment, Three Words, which was great for language lovers like myself. Bonus points if you like Martin Scorsese. Good show and joy. Thank you so much, Mark. He's a good guy. Uh, how about it, Joe? We got to get you on Twitter. People want you on Twitter. Hey, everyone, follow me on Twitter at go go Joe E. Go go Joe E. That's my Twitter handle for some reason. Everyone, hit the old follow button. Want to make that clear? Go go Joe E. So two E's at the end. Okay, yeah. For a second, I thought you were saying like Joe E, but you were indeed saying Joe with two E's at the end. Okay, good stuff. Uh, Joe has been among the many who have said, listen, watch Succession. You're going to love it. And guess what? I like it a lot. I don't love it, but I like it a lot. If you don't know what it's about, let me give you a little backstory. The Roy family, Logan Roy and his four ch children control one of the biggest media and entertainment conglomerates in the world. The HBO drama series tracks their lives as they contemplate what the future will hold for them once their aging father 
begins to step back from the company. Words that come to mind, Shakespearean, right away. I saw this is like King Lear. The father's trying to determine which of his four kids should get his fortune. Uh, should it be Connor, played by Alan Ruck, love him from Spin City. Character I don't really care for as much. He's earthy, he's big on his organic farm. He's a little goofy. He's also in love with a hooker, which is an interesting subplot. And <laughs> uh, there's also um, Shabon, that's his daughter, uh, played by Sarah Snook. She's into politics. She's playing the political game, so she's not really with the family business. We got Kieran Culkin, who almost steals every scene he's in. If it wasn't for every scene he's in with Brian Cox, because he's the best part of the show. But Kieran Culkin, incredibly funny. I couldn't even begin to give you the amount of lewd, obscene humor that he gives, but all of it is not only inventive and creative, but very funny, and he plays that character so well. A smarmy rich boy who you love to hate, who as his brother Kendall says to him at one point, you couldn't get a job at a burger joint if it wasn't for nepotism, and instead he's the CEO of the company. That's right, Macaulay Culkin's kid, in case you're wondering. And then, of course, there's Kendall Roy, played by Jeremy Strong, who in many ways is the lead character. And he's the son who you think is going to be the successor. He seems like he has it all together. He had a drug problem in the past. It's under control, but he's the one who's smart, who gets it. And he's also got the cojones to take on his pops. But the best part of the show is, of course, Brian Cox. His performance is all-timer as Logan Roy. You know, in many ways, it feels like the show is, uh, I don't want to say necessarily paying homage to, but it's a knockoff of the Murdochs, a right-wing family. You've got Fox News. They've got their hands with regards to print and media news. But they also got parks. It's almost like as if you're combining Fox News and Disney. And so you've got this Disney conglomerate. And so it's this big corporation held up by this aging patriarch who is just about as blunt as you get. And you think of like an alpha male running a company. Well, that's Logan Roy. He is incredibly profane. He's brash. Um, he's hot-headed. He's temperamental. But he's also brilliant and ruthless. And that's how you achieve power at the world, at least by looking at succession. It's created by Jesse Armstrong. Uh, he does an excellent job, particularly like I said, with the, the acting and the dialogue and nailing that world of the rich. And like, you want to know rich, this is like super elite rich, richer than anybody you could even fathom. Love the credit sequence. Some of the best music on television. I, I watched the first episode and the pilot's excellent. I said, God, how good is the music? How good is the credit sequence? Showing a bunch of rich people, they're playing tennis, it's shot from a home video, really immersive and very evocative. So I like the show a lot. My issue with the show, this is why I don't unconventionally love it, is I just think it's very much a soap opera, right? It, it is just like watching Dynasty or Days of Our Lives, except it's on HBO. And sometimes with soap operas, it just has to strain credibility at times. I, I just find it a little far-fetched that Shiv, who's big in the political world, would latch herself onto the number one presidential candidate who's a giant socialist, played by the great Eric Bogosian, almost as if he's doing a Barry Sanders riff, uh, excuse me, Bernie Sanders riff, um, and so that she would latch onto his campaign because, you know, his number one enemy is her father because he's the one who's, you know, doling out all this right-wing news media and then all of a sudden she's going to, you know, connive with him and some of the backwards dealings I find. And listen, I'm not uh, naive enough to not think these things happen, but at times I do think it, it stretches credibility. Maybe another term for it would be it's a plot contrivance. You know, at times it, it fits a little bit too neatly. Uh, having said that, because of the dialogue, which is so delicious, because the characters are so wickedly nasty, and most of all because of Brian Cox's towering performance, I recommend Succession. It's probably three Maple Leafs, if not three and a half Maple Leafs. Like I said, I'm going to keep pounding ahead with the show. It's interesting in terms of critical approval. It's definitely gotten excellent reviews. It hasn't really won the Emmys, unfortunately, because it's got Game of Thrones in its way. Well, now God is gone. I'm on record as saying I prefer Better Call Saul. And I hope the Emmys this September reward Better Call Saul for best drama series. And I hope Odenkirk finally wins. And I hope Ray Seahorn finally gets nominated and wins. But maybe this is now succession will become that Emmy darling. I believe the Critics' Choice Awards, it did well. I believe Brian Cox won Best Actor there. He's 73 years old playing an 80-year-old man. But this guy chews scenery with the best of him. And a little bit of Brian Cox goes a long way. My other quibble of the show is the pilot's excellent, then... Without giving it away, he disappears for episodes two, three, and four. So, hang on a second. He's the best part of the show. You got to bring, bring him back. So, once he does come back, and there's a hostile takeover episode, which is a really a new peak for the show, and then the climax with Shiv's wedding really goes to a new level. And uh, it really is heartbreaking what happens to some members of this family. Uh, also notable, Tom plays the brother in law. He's really good in the show. I do find the character Greg to be annoying. He's this little nephew that's kind of a pissant, although he's smarter than you realize. 
you know, with truly great dramatic shows and ensembles, I kind of have to love every character. Like Better Call Saul, I like every character on that show. If there's a Mike-themed show, I'm in. If there's a Gus-themed show, I'm in. Uh, it doesn't just have to be about Kim um, and obviously about Jimmy. In the case of, of Succession, I find that there's characters like Kendall is excellent, and Jeremy Strong really did a great job with showing how this character is just a rich, spoiled brat and ends up giving him some real pathos and some real poignance as his drug addiction rears its ugly head. I thought characters like him are really strong. Some of the other characters I'm just not as invested in. Succession, three, maybe three and a half Maple Leafs. I'll bang out season two. Joe, the floor is yours. And then I'm so glad you said that because I've been thinking that this show by the time it hits season four, let's say, could be the next Game of Thrones type water cooler show that everyone's talking about watching on Sunday nights. Um, what team are you on after season one? Because it changed for me from season one to two. But are you team uh, Logan, team Roman, team Shiv? What, what are you right now? Definitely not team Shiv. My wife finds her particularly grating and annoying. I do feel for Team Kendall, although, I mean, just, like, what, what are you doing getting Greg to get your coke from the city, like, from a park? I'm like, what are you doing, man? You have so much money. Like, come on, get your cocaine somewhere else. But I'm Team Logan. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I, I don't necessarily think, by the way, he's smart in his idea to buy a bunch of local TV stations. Although, having said that, in the age of corona, I've never watched more news in my life. I've never watched more local news in my life. Like, I'm dialed into Eyewitness 7, ABC, because, of course, they do what's happening in New York City, then they go to New Jersey, and then they go to Connecticut. So, you know what? Maybe Logan Roy is on to something. There's a reason why people love local news, particularly in times of crisis. Uh, local news is much more impactful than news on a national level. Like you said, and I think it should be noted for anyone who hasn't seen the show yet, the company that they run is like Fox News. But like you said, Disney as well. They have cruise lines. They have amusement parks. They have their fingers in a lot of everything. So it causes for just this obscene amount of wealth, as you pointed out earlier. Yeah, it's. Um, we didn't really discuss the... <laughs> The, I, I mentioned the dialogue, but don't you find, Joe, it almost has like a musicality to it. Like I, I'm watching it going like I want to write down some of these lines because it's just so funny and it's so well crafted. Like I can't imagine. Hopefully at some point we'll reach out to somebody from Succession. I, I'm guessing. I don't think they've announced it yet. Correct me if I'm wrong. But the first two seasons came out in the summer. So my guess is season three will be coming out maybe in June or July of this year. So hopefully we'll try to get whether or not Jesse Armstrong, the showrunner, or any members of the cast. But don't you feel like there's no way there's any ad-libbing on this set? Like, that dialogue is so precise and so funny. I mean, these guys will be incredibly quick-witted to come up with those lines. When Roman is dishing out an insult, that's like a carefully crafted, formulated insult. Like, there's no way he can come up with that off the top of his head. And I'll send you the uh, YouTube compilation video of all his biggest burns from season one. It's really, really funny. Filthy, but very funny. Okay, that, that's what I'm looking forward to, because you're right, Joe. I, I need to like actually see them and remember them because of how good they are and just how funny they are. I mean, it's, it's, it's cutting the way these guys all talk to each other. But listen, every family's got their own issues, as we all know. Matthew Gilbert of Boston Globe. There's enough backstabbing and secretive planning among the Roys to keep them joyless and to keep us joyfully entertained for some time to come. And Sophie Gilbert of The Atlantic. Season two is extraordinary. Jesse Armstrong, the show's creator, finds new levels of horror to mine in Succession's autopsy of the ultra-rich, but he also finds pathos, which elevates the show even further. Okay, I, amazingly, I've had no spoilers so far. I mean, I've been watching the show. I have not Googled anything. I've not looked up anything. I haven't texted people. I'm watching it, so hopefully I can stay spoiler-free and watch season two. The aforementioned Rick Passport told me there's one episode in season two. He said, I cannot wait for you to watch. So, I'm guessing something involving Brian Cox, as I've made it clear what a fan I am of him. Um, by the way, he, we, sometimes I don't know if people find this. You know, it's hard to watch an actor because you know him so well from another role. My buddy Alf is going to remember this movie. It's called L-I-E, Lie, but it stands for Long Island Expressway. Brian Cox plays a child molester in that movie. Like, it is so disturbing him playing a pedophile, epitomized by him at one point telling somebody, I'm the best cocksucker on the East Coast. So... I have found it for years, it's tough to look at Brian Cox and not separate him from that role, but he's so magnificent as Logan Roy, I think I can finally picture him as a patriarch and not in the movie L.I.E. Live, which, which is a great movie, despite its very disturbing subject matter. Uh, from that, we go to something nice and bright and fun. It is indeed, yes, back 
to the future. 35th anniversary. Joe and I discussed last week. It's one of the all-time best titles. And by the way, thank you to all of you for chiming in on uh, social media. Other great titles. Of course, my man Ben Lyons. He threw in Do the Right Thing. That is a great title. He said The Godfather, which is one of my favorite movies. I don't know if it's a great title. I mean, it's a good title, but I don't know if it's great. I think just because how great The Godfather is. But Do the Right Thing, I completely agree with Ben. I mean, that's a tremendous title by Spike Lee. Uh, my buddy Anish threw in Suicide Kings. Pretty good title. I've never seen the movie. Christopher Walken, I'm aware of it. But again, good title. Uh, we got a bunch of those options, so thank you, everybody. But Joe and I completely agreed. Back to the Future is an awesome title, and it's a hell of a movie. If you haven't seen it in a long time, go ahead and watch it again. I watched it with my two elder boys uh, who are 11 and 8, and they enjoyed it as much as I did. Uh, I don't really know what more I have to say new on the movie. I have, I have more to say about Back to the Future 2, but I'll just say this about Back to the Future 1, because I asked my eldest son afterwards, like, what did you like about it? He's like, oh, I liked it. Like, you know, I went back in time, he went back to the future. I'm like, well, yeah, yeah but what did you like specifically? So then thankfully, my wife goes, what did you, know, what did you like? So I had to explain to him, like, well, listen, this is why I think Back to the Future is a great movie. It's about technology and science fiction and who the hell wouldn't like to go back in time. And the flux capacitor on 1.21 gigawatts and plutonium. And you made a time machine out of a DeLorean? I figure if you're going to do it, you might as well do it with style. But I think what really is, makes it special is it's got a lot of heart. And who wouldn't want to go back and see their parents and help out their dad when he was in high school, find the love of his life? And, you know, some of the sweetest moments to me when I watched it again, I haven't seen it in years, is when he's talking about books that he writes. And Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox, is surprised that Crispin Glover's dad does that. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you got to get it out there. And, and right away, George, oh, no, 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 like, uh, no, I, I could never do that. I could never handle that kind of rejection. Maybe that sounds weird to you. And Marty goes, no, I totally get that. And it, it's sweet that, you know, he's there for his dad to build up his confidence, not only with his writing, but also, of course, to ask out his mom and Lorraine and, you know, obviously set things right in motion. But I just thought that's such a nice subplot to be able to have not only the combination of science and for its time, let's be honest, the special effects in 1985, like hats off to Robert Zemeckis. Spielberg was a producer. I mean, that was revolutionary to go to 88 miles an hour. I couldn't wait till I started driving. I go, I cannot wait to go to 88 miles an hour. It's my first thing I'm going to do. Um, but I think that combination of not only the science fiction, but also a lot of heart, and it's slickly directed. I mean, that whole sequence, my God, when, when, when all of a sudden they're waiting for the clock tower to be hit by lightning and <laughs> the core, the cable comes undone and Doc's going to go flying down and jamming it at the right. I mean, it's amazing. And it's interesting, when you look at the Academy, we talk about Total Recall quite a bit. Glaring omission, Back to the Future did not get Oscar wins. Like, come on. How is Christopher Lloyd not winning an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor? Tremendous is Dr. Emmett Brown. He's funny. Uh, he's charming. And again, there's a tenderness to it. The scene where Marty's trying to tell him that he's going to die in the future, and Doc says, no, I don't want to hear it. Like, it's going to mess up the whole space-time continuum. Forget about it. And later on, Marty writes him that note. And the way he gives him a hug, like, hey, Doc, I'll see you soon. And, and, and it's such a nice moment where Doc says, you know, Marty, I, I don't know how I'm going to be able to wait 30 years before I get to see you again and talk to you about all this stuff. And you can look at, look at Marty's face. And he's like, oh, man, but Doc, you're going to get drilled by these Libyans. Like, I don't know how to tell you this. And the fact, obviously, it's a bulletproof vest. It's a, it's a really sweet moment in the movie. Back to the future. Before I get to Back to the Future 2, I will let Joe jump in with his thoughts on the first one, which is, of course, a classic. It is... This might sound like a cop-out blurb that I'm about to say, but it's truly, I think, one of the most watchable movies uh, ever made, especially when it came out in the midst of Star Wars, Jaws, Indiana Jones. This movie is thoroughly entertaining from start to finish. It doesn't let up. Well, how old are your kids? This is their first time watching it? Yeah, so my elder boys are 11 and 8. And they were able to hang with it. My 8-year-old had to ask, you know, answer a few questions. Okay, what's happening now? Like, but 2 is much more complex. So I had to definitely do a little more work on that. But for 11 and 8, like, they were locked into this. So to your point, it's timeless for, for I think, from ages 8 to eight to 80. Yeah, um, that's exciting. I'm so, I'm so happy for them. Don't show them number 3. But, yeah, I, I definitely. <laughs> At the end of 2, you know, the screen says to be concluded. And I immediately told them, listen, there's a third one. And by the way, at the end of two, they do show a trailer for the third one, right? They show them in the Wild Wild West. And I just said to them, listen, this movie is so appalling. I mean, if you guys are dying to know what happens, I'll put it on for you, but I ain't watching it. Like, I, I'm, there's just no way I'm going to sit through the third one. It's just, <laughs> it was essentially Robert Zemeckis' excuse to make a Western. Um, there's some reviews that Joe put together. Lou Liminick of New York Post, Zemeckis and Gale. By the way, shout out to Bob Gale. He's the co-writer as well. Great. Huge Cubs fan. Zemeckis and Gale have candidly chosen the time periods, which are funny as much as their similarities, political and materialistic as their contrasts. 
music, fashions, and language. Paul Atanasio, who's a great screenwriter, used to be a film critic. He wrote the Washington Post. Zemeckis and Gale have given the movie a core of feeling that makes real claims on us. For all its comedy, Back to the Future is about a kid coming to terms with his parents' inadequacies, a moment familiar to everyone and the fulcrum in growing up. See, Paul Atanasio said it better than I did. It took me five minutes to say it. He said it in two sentences. That's really why Back to the Future is such a great, great movie. Heavy. Why is that word again? Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull? So many one-liners from Doc. That gets us to Back to the Future 2, which I liked a lot more when I first saw it. I remember when I saw it, I was 11, and I thought, oh my God, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Watching it a second time, I, I appreciate what they're going for, and it's certainly got a lot of the science fiction aspects, and it's definitely clever, but it lacks, I think, a lot of the heart of the original. It doesn't have nearly as much humor, but it definitely has got levels upon levels. In the zany sequel, time-traveling duo Marty and Doc return from saving Marty's future son from disaster, only to discover their own time transformed. In this nightmarish version of Hill Valley, Marty's father has been murdered and Biff Tannen, Marty's nemesis, has profited. After uncovering the secret of Biff's success, a sports almanac from the future, Marty and the Doc embark on a quest to repair the space-time continuum. So the first thing is, it's funny explaining to my kids, it's 2015, which is, of course, five years ago. They go, what, this is the future? Michael? Like, well, this is what they guessed it would be. And yeah, you can make fun of the flying cars and the hoverboards and the fashion, but give them props what they got right. They knew FaceTime. When, when Marty goes home and he talks to his uh, buddy Needles and then gets fired by his boss, they're FaceTiming, which now, of course, everyone does, and, and the movie predicted that. They did not get right the idea of hydrating, which literally they put a mini pizza in an oven, press hydrate, and five seconds later it comes out. One of the many things that annoyed me, when she puts the pizza in, obviously it's cold, but she takes it out, it's hot, yet no oven mitt apparently needed to, to carry out a hot pizza. Other issues with it, oh, sorry, let me guess one other thing they got right. Cubs win World Series, of course, 2016. Chris Bryant and the Cubs win the World Series. And when Marty looks up, says Cubs win World Series over Miami. They predicted there'd be a baseball team in Miami. There was no Miami Marlins, of course, um, or even the Florida Marlins back in 1989. So props to Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis for that. So it's got some levels, and it's definitely got a lot of fun uh, playing with the conventions of the first one. But numerous issues abound, which I've now discovered with my jaded eye of being a film critic, and I didn't have when I was watching it 30 years ago. One of which, when they go to the future, they just leave Jennifer in the alley. And when, when Marty says, what about Jennifer? He goes, oh, she's going to be fine. In what universe would you just leave somebody in an alley for a few minutes? I'm like, nah, they're good. They're good. Okay. We just got to take care of this thing. Save your son. Uh, as one of my friends from Sirius Satellite Radio, Brady Gardner pointed out, it's also a completely unnecessary movie. You know, something's got to be done about your kids. All Doc had to do is tell Marty, hey, just be a better dad, okay? Like, that's it. We don't need to go to the future and ruin everything. Just, hey, look out for you. Just be better parents. How does that sound? And then your kids won't be screw-ups and get involved in crime with Griff. But anyways, they leave Jennifer, which then leads to the fact that Doc and Marty, after encountering Biff, excuse me, Griff, the kid, and Biff, actually the grandfather, they go to Hill Valley to intercept and get the old Jennifer back. While there, after they land in the Flying DeLorean, they leave the door open. Like Michael J. Fox just leaves the door open and Marty starts walking the street, which of course allows Biff, who was telling him in a cab, to just jump in the DeLorean. Then, how the hell does this guy know how to drive a space, like a space, a time travel machine? Biff apparently has no problem. He's 80 years old. He just pops in some codes, boom, goes back to 1985 and changes history. Uh, those are among the issues I have with it. Although it is funny seeing Michael J. Fox in drag playing his daughter in the movie and also playing older as well. Uh, the stuff that I did enjoy is when they go back to 1955 and then Marty can't see his previous self. Uh, he's got to get the almanac back. Here's another quibble of the movie as I continue to be a Debbie Downer. And Joe knows this as sports fans. Listen, he gets the almanac, which I think is a great conceit. I love that idea that you could predict the future and just gamble. 1950 to 2000. Once Doc says get rid of the book, couldn't you just open it and go, well, let me just check the World Series winner in 1990. You know, let, let me just, let me get a couple of these winners. All right, Reds in 1990. Yankees are going to have a dynasty in 96. Like you would be able to remember a couple of things. You don't need the entire book. And then you could literally, think about it. Marty in 1985 is supposed to be 17. Hey, when I'm 28, I'm going to put everything I have on the Yankees in 96 and Derek Jeter and Joe Torre. I'm going to wake a fortune and we're good. No, just throw the book away. Not even throw the book away. Leave the book where conveniently Biff ends up grabbing it. Um, also, I remember at the time the, book, the movie got some backlash for the fact that when Marty goes back to 1985, the alternate 1985, he goes to his old house. And how do they depict that it's a slum? Well, it's an African-American family living there. And right away, I remember people saying, well, hang on a second. Oh, so this is how we know it's a bad neighborhood because there's a bunch of black people now living where Marty and the McFlys used to live? Um, 
Later on, Strickland's got a machine gun and he's getting his house torched out. I mean, that whole alternative universe stuff is really interesting too. And, and Thomas F. Wilson, by the way, speaking of overactors, he's having a blast as Biff. I mean, there's definitely a lot of overacting going on this way between Biff and Doc. Both those guys are chewing scenery. Um, and Shea Serrano, who, of course, a former guest of Cinefot, pointed out his issue with Back to the Future, which is this. Biff literally tries to rape Lorraine. And yet, years later, George McFly hires him to wash his car. Like, oh, I see. you tried to rape my wife. You sexually assaulted her. Then I punched you. I changed history. But guess what? I'll still employ you as my slave, and you can wash my car. All of that being said, there's still some great moments in Back to the Future 2. Just ignore me. Suspend belief. Have fun with it. Go with it. And pretend the third one didn't exist. Joe, your thoughts on this long spiel about the second one? That what what you just said is really throwing me for a loop right now, and I have to <laughs> process that really quick. Um, having said that, it's great, and you're right. Could you imagine? You know, it looks like the Bulls are gonna have a really really great '90s. Like, let me just know that. I just need one. I just need one. But I love the movie. I'm really excited for your kids, and if they do watch the third one. Yes, don't don't watch it with them. But now I'm excited to watch it again with an adult lens. Yeah, I, I encourage you to do it again, Joe. Because listen, it's still fun. It's still, as you mentioned with the first one, very briskly paced. Like I'm looking at it, go, man, they, they're cramming a lot in here. They went to 2015. They went back to 1985, an alternative version. They went back to 1955. And the movie's like an hour 45. Like it, it, it really is impressive how well Zemeckis is able to pace it all and working levels upon levels and jokes that people remember from four years ago. Even the backstory to it. Think about it. 1985 was Back to the Future. Michael J. Fox was doing family ties during the day. It was a lot of night shoots for Back to the Future. The guy was literally sleeping four hours a night, if that, doing what was the biggest TV show in the country, arguably, maybe with the Cosby show as well, and then doing what became the number one box office movie of 1985. And then four years later, they shoot the sequels consecutively, two and three. And um, obviously, it's a, it's a classic. We move on to another classic, Carrie. And this is a movie that I'd never seen before, and thank God I don't have a daughter. In this chilling adaptation of Stephen King's horror novel, withdrawn and sensitive teen Carrie White, Sissy Spacek, faces taunting from classmates at school and abuse from her fanatically pious mother, Piper Laurie, at home. When strange occurrences start happening around Carrie, she begins to suspect that she has supernatural powers. Invited to the prom of the empathetic Tommy Ross, Carrie tries to let her guard down, but things eventually take a dark and violent turn. The people who love Hitchcock most of all, and that includes someone like Quentin Tarantino, will point out the fact he clearly is a guy who loves Alfred Hitchcock, and he pays homage to Hitchcock and does it in his own way. The people who dislike Brian De Palma will say he's a cheap imitator of Alfred Hitchcock, and his movies are often derivative of Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, as mentioned before, uh, <laughs> overacting, Nicolas Cage and Snake Eyes, is an example of where De Palma is just making it just a dreadful movie. And he's definitely got a lot of movies like that. Femme Fatale is another one. Rebecca Romain Stamos, a mess. But I think he really is a great director. Because I think if you look at his best movies, they have a certain grandeur and a certain operatic sweep to them. And they're not all uh, movies in which he's paying homage to Hitchcock. Look at Scarface. Look at The Untouchables. Look at Carlito's Way. I think Casualties of War is very underrated. Um, and those movies are certainly special. He's got a unique place in film history, and there's a great documentary called De Palma, which I've reviewed here on Cinephile, came out a couple years ago, in which he talks about all of his movies, and you should watch it, because he's part of that 70s group of Scorsese and Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola uh, and Billy Friedkin and Bogdanovich, and sometimes De Palma doesn't really get his due. But Carrie is a heck of a movie, and it is certainly chilling. By the way, we've got some movie news at Mount Rushmore coming up after this. No guests this week. But in terms of Carrie, the first scene, it's Carrie getting her period in the shower. And just, I mean, it's so visceral, blood's pouring. And all of her classmates are laughing at her, pointing at her. Like, it's, it's, you couldn't imagine a more humiliating moment for a girl. And she goes over and tells her mom, like, you should have told me. You should have told me about this. And the mom, who is this crazy religious fanatic, is telling her, it's like, no, no, you've sinned. Like, this is the way you've sinned because you're bleeding and God hates you. And it's like, oh, the mother is just, I mean, you talk about the blank from hell which Richard Lewis came up with on Curb Enthusiasm. This is truly the mother from hell in her religious fanaticism and just how mean-spirited she is towards her daughter. So Carrie's an outcast. She's miserable. Thankfully, one guy shows her a little bit of love. She goes to the prom, 
And then they have this horrible idea of pouring blood on her, and then all hell breaks loose. And Sissy Spacek definitely gives a gutsy performance, considering the fact she's a teenager in this movie, and she's got to deal a lot of vile stuff. And yes, 44 years later, it's not exactly as scary as it was. It's not like The Exorcist for its day, but it's definitely creepy. I think if I watch it at one in the morning, it's a little bit chilly. And most of all, De Palma is having a blast. I mean, it reminded me in some ways of what Sam Raimi did with Evil Dead, in which I'm going to throw the camera everywhere, and I'm going to do a lot of movie tricks from film school, and we're going to have fun with this. And yeah, it's going to be scary, but it's also tongue-in-cheek, and it's kind of dementedly funny. And that's what I felt like watching De Palma's carry, especially the final climax. I mean, he's got some gonzo sequences, really bravura filmmaking. If you're a Brian De Palma fan, if you like horror movies, I would definitely recommend Carrie, and I'm glad I finally saw it. I'm giving it three and a half Maple Leafs. Here's some reviews from critics from that time. Kathleen Carroll of New York Daily News. With each new movie, De Palma comes closer to mastering Hitchcock's trademark of teasing suspense and tongue-in-cheek horror. Richard Schickel of Time Magazine. An exercise in high style that even the most unredeemably rational among moviegoers should find enormously enjoyable. And Andrew Collins of Empire. The reason Carrie is still held in such high regard as a horror classic is very simple. It's all in the sheer directorial bravado. De Palma at the top of his game. Andrew Collins of Empire. Uh, also, when the mother is warning Carrie not to go to the prom, she keeps saying, they're all going to laugh at you, which, of course, I know, which is the title of one of Adam Sandler's stand-up tapes. I'm not even a huge Sandler fan, but as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh, they're all going to laugh at you. They're all going to laugh at you. Yeah, of course. Carrie's mom, Adam Sandler, paying homage two years later. Joe, I know you've seen Carrie. Your thoughts on it? I absolutely love, love this movie. And you know what, Adnan? Kids can be so mean. This high school is just each scene. Everyone just hates Carrie. Um, it, it's really great. It really holds up. And it's one of my favorite Brian De Palma movies. I still want you to watch Blowout because he kind of takes the slasher horror genre and turns it on his head in that movie. But I really, really would throw Carrie in my top three. Yeah, I was about to say, I, Blowout, I know you love that movie. I, especially as a sound engineer, it's like one of your top three movies of all time. And I'm sure that's, again, a movie that's very Hitchcockian. I'm sure in terms of uh, style and display. I'm sure in that movie, he's paying homage to Rear Window, right? And, yeah, and um, I won't say too much about it, but he is playing with that. It is Hitchcockian. And like this review says, that with each movie that he came out, he came closer to... Uh, Hitchcock's trademark of teasing suspense and tongue in cheek horror, and I think he does that perfectly in Blowout as well. That's awesome. I will definitely get to it, because listen, I've got nothing else going on right now, and you're right. I trust your opinion, and I'm all in on De Palma, especially of that era. Coming up next, some entertainment news. What the Academy is doing differently in terms of the Oscars because of COVID-19, plus a Mount Rushmore of overactors. How much fun is this going to be? That's next on Cinefunk. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. All right, some entertainment news here for you in Cinephile. The Oscars will consider films that didn't play in theaters as part of the new Academy rules. That's right, tweaking it because of the coronavirus pandemic. Board of Governors approving a temporary hold on the requirement that a film needs a seven-day theatrical run in a commercial theater in Los Angeles County to qualify for the Oscars. Instead, films will be allowed to be released digitally without playing in theaters. However, that doesn't mean any movie premiering on a streaming service is eligible for Oscar gold. To be considered, the streamed film must have already had a planned theatrical release. The film must also be made available on the Academy Screening Room member-only streaming site within 60 days of the film's streaming or VOD release. 
once movie theaters are allowed to reopen, and by the way, I was reading my Hollywood Reporter, some estimates are saying mid-June, some are saying July for when theaters are going to open. So once movie theaters are allowed to reopen, the seven-day window will once again be required for eligibility. Picks that have already streamed will not have to be then released in theaters. When theaters reopen, the Academy will also expand the number of qualifying theaters beyond L.A. County to include venues in New York City, the Bay Area, Chicago, Miami, and Atlanta. And this is also interesting. The Academy is combining things, sound mixing and sound editing, one of which tripped me up. I went 21 or 24, and I screwed up on one of those. Otherwise, it would have been 22 or 24 for the Oscars in terms of predicting awards. It's going to be one award now. Sound mixing, sound editing, RIP, just one. Total number of categories down to 23. The sound branch actually initiated the change. The Oscars, God willing, February 28th, 2021 on ABC. As a sound guy, Joe, I thought of you right away. Sound mixing and sound editing. Just one now. I didn't know what to make of that until I read that the sound branch actually initiated it. And I wonder if it's because of this year's results, because I believe 1917 got one of them and then Ford versus Ferrari got another one. Or if it was deemed too boring for a mainstream audience. I wonder what was the catalyst behind it. I don't know. You're right. That, it's strange how it all went down, but that's what's going to be the case. Bottom line is this. I'm happy for all these movies that are not going to get screwed because it's a, listen, we've obviously got unprecedented yeah. circumstances here. Let them, allow them to be a part of the Academy Fund, right? 110%. And I think this also provides um, precedent for when the Academy revisits this conversation years from now, because everything's moving towards digital and streaming and limited theater releases. Um, So I just wonder if now they'll look back on this in the future and say, well, it worked out this year during the pandemic, so let's change the rules permanently. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a good point. I'm curious to see how it's going to go down. Um, other entertainment news, and this is a sad one here. Rest in peace. Irfan Khan dying of age 53, one of Bollywood's most beloved stars, uh, had been ill, and then they confirmed his uh, death last week. Known as one of Bollywood's most celebrated actors, often played villains. My wife's a huge Bollywood fan, so I, I'm well aware of his work there as a villain. But was known for modesty and integrity in a lot of English-speaking roles, and in fact, probably the most well-known Indian actor of the last decade because of the fact he was in Slumdog Millionaire, Jurassic World, Life of Pi, and um, also in great films like The Namesake and Lunchbox. He was a really excellent actor. 53 is awfully young. I was very sad to see this. Um, Anytime you see an actor go away of that age, it's sad, but I thought he really brought a lot of gravitas to those roles that I mentioned. I was very sad to see this, Joe. Irfan Khan, talented guy in some big-time movies over the last decade. Yeah, it's always sad to see, especially when you know that this person had so much more acting ahead of them. Um, But to to break through into Hollywood, I think, is a huge testament to his skill, and I still remember him in Slumdog Millionaire, and I still think he stood out in that movie so really sad news all around no doubt about it rest in peace for fun con check out some of his movies if you have not seen those let's move on now to our mount rushmore mount rushmore so in honor of Brian Cox chewing the scenery on Succession, he's the best part of the show, and he's often the best part of whatever role he's in, Mount Rushmore of overactors. <laughs> How about this list that Joe's called together? I mean, we already know we're going to have Al Pacino, so let's go ahead and get that out of the way. Al Pacino, Alan Rickman, Alec Baldwin, Brian Cox, Bruce Lee, Claire Danes. That one made me laugh. Homeland, finally over. Daniel Day-Lewis. Dennis Hopper, Heath Ledger, Ian McKellen, Jack Nicholson, Jim Carrey, John Malkovich, John Travolta, Judy Dench, Mel Gibson, Nicolas Cage, Orson Welles, Paul Giamatti, Robin Williams, Sam Jackson, Terrence Stamp, Tim Curry, Tom Cruise, Tommy Lee Jones, William Shatner. All right, obviously I adore Pacino as my favorite actor, but yes, he likes to go big, okay? He can obviously be an over-actor, and uh, sometimes it's to success. Dick Tracy, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, very over-the-top, playing big boy Caprice. And sometimes, like with Jack and Jill, he's just overacting and it's not fun. Jack Nicholson's a great overactor, right? One floor of the cuckoo's nest, the character's larger than life, and Jack's outsized persona nails it. He's a great actor, but I think he's also an overactor. Once in a while, you see some subtlety. About Schmidt is a great example of subtle Nicholson. When he was doing the role early on, he was going big as he always does, and then Alexander Payne told him to rein it in a little bit. And Nicholson said with a sly smile, oh, you want me to actually act for a change? And Schmidt said, yeah, he goes, great. 
Uh, about Schmidt, I think is one of Jack Nicholson's best roles, by the way, because of the fact he's not doing that Jack thing. Jim Carrey, listen, Susie Kurtz had it right in Liar Liar. Over actor, I love him, but he obviously, he is not a guy prone to subtlety, with exceptions like Eternal Sunshine, but obviously all his comedies, he's going big or go home. And then how the hell do you not do over actors and not include Nicolas Cage? I am the king! I mean, look at Snake Eyes, look at Face Off, look at any number of movies he's done, Mandy. I mean, if you think over the top, you're thinking of Nick Cage. Again, there's times he can be a little more reserved, uh, you know, leaving Las Vegas. But even like with stuff like Moonstruck, which is you know, well-received, again, he's larger than life, Raising Arizona, eyes are ablaze the entire film. Susan Emery, by the way, huge Raising Arizona fan, great movie. That's my list. Pacino, Nicholson, Carey, and Cage. But honestly... It's tough to not have Robin Williams on this list or John Malkovich. Both those guys definitely. Look, at, you watch John Malkovich in the line of fire. That's pretty strong overacting as well. Joe, how about for you? And by the way, how the hell can I not get William Shatner in here? He's a great overactor. Go ahead. Oh, boy. Uh, first, I'll agree with you with Al Pacino. Attica! Uh, <laughs> so I, ha- I have to include him. He goes big every time. Um, and then I'll also take Jim Carrey. Um, Ace Ventura. It's just such physical, over-the-top humor and comedy that I, I think he needs to be included. I will do Robin Williams for a lot of the similar reasons for Jim Carrey, um, but he does it in drama better than Jim Carrey, I think. And I will go with John Malkovich, too, because I rewatched Being John Malkovich um, the other week. And he's playing so many different people, different characters who have taken a hold of him. And he, he nails it. So I'll throw on John Malkovich. But shout out to John Travolta when he faced off against Nicolas Cage to overact in the movie <laughs> Face Off. Exactly. The job was to overact because he had to play Nicolas Cage in Face Off. You're going to take his face off. Cinephile Pod, Adnan Esberk, or Go Go Joe E. Tweet us. Let us know what you think of this Mount Rushmore overactors. I think this was a fun one. All right, now it's time for Total Recall as you keep things moving here on Cinephile. 2011 is the year. The film's from 2010. The King's Speech won Best Picture. What else was nominated that year, Joe? 127 Hours, Black Swan, The Fighter, Inception, The Kids Are All Right, The Social Network, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Uh, they really pushed it this year, huh? Yeah. You can nominate between five and ten movies. We're going to go all ten movies. Okay, great. Uh, as I scan the list, I love The King's Speech. It was one of my favorite movies of the year. I was so happy when it won. There was a lot of people, though, who said, what about The Social Network? That's going to be the movie that's more resonant and more reflective of the age in which we live. That may be true, but I love The King's Speech. But honestly, now that I look at it, Maybe it should have been Toy Story 3. I mean, that's my favorite of the Toy Stories. Animated movies never get their due. The King's Speech is great, but you know what? We've seen movies like that. You know, period piece, English guy overcoming an impediment. It's impeccably acted. It's a wonderful script. Colin Firth, Jeffrey Rush are excellent. But honestly, maybe Toy Story 3 should have won. Maybe Black Swan. Horror movies never get their due. It's a great psychological film. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge fan of Darren Aronofsky. This is a tough one for me, Joe. And of course, I know people, I'm not as big on Inception as others. Uh, there's Chris Nolan fans just swear that's his best movie. It's a little too mind-bending for me, which is my way of saying I'm not smart enough to totally, I think, understand Inception. But this is tough, Joe. I, I wasn't, I was okay with King's Speech winning. I loved it. But honestly, how about Toy Story 3? It's so good. Toy Story 3 is amazing. And, um... You're right, Black Swan, I'm glad to see a horror movie get love, but Inception doesn't hold up. I watched it maybe last week. I don't think it holds up at all after the fact now in 2020. So I I just, yeah, I don't think there's longevity to it personally. But I will say The King's Speech is on my Mount Rushmore of, I think, movies ever, so I will agree with the Academy and put The King's Speech down. Isn't it so well done? Like on all levels, it's funny, it's sweet, it's romantic, it's dramatic, it's like well-paced, it's got characters you love. I mean, that that whole sequence where Jeffrey Rush is trying to help him first speak, I mean, it's amazing how well it's done. And even first performance, because he's so uptight, he's so 
pissed and repressed and bitter, and Rush gets him to open up. And even that last speech, I mean, think of how tough that is. You're making a guy speaking the dramatic essence of the movie, right? This isn't an action movie. This isn't like blowout, um, you know, action sequence. This is like, no, no, a guy's going to talk, and that's the climax of the movie, and it's heartfelt. And I love the fact where Jeffrey Rush tells him at the end, he's like, you know, you kind of stumbled there, and, and first says, well, yeah, I mean, I, I had to do that or else they wouldn't have known it was me. So perfect, that movie. I, I love it. I'm, I'm glad you love it as much as I do. Best director was Tom Hooper for The King's Speech. I'm glad he won, although, God, he also directed Cats, which is apparently one of the worst movies ever. So apparently Tom Hooper has greatness and also some terrible movies along the way. What else was nominated for Best Director? Darren Aronofsky for Black Swan, David O. Russell for The Fighter, David Fincher, The Social Network, and the Coen Brothers for True Grit. I, I got to tell you, man, I love the Coen Brothers, but this is what, again, I would not have nominated them Best Director. True Grit to me was decent, but it was certainly nowhere near some of their best work. And I couldn't, I can't believe that was one of the five best movies in terms of directorially speaking. I mean, it's a remake of a, a, remake of a John Wayne movie, and John Wayne wasn't that good anyways. Um, having said that, Fincher does an awful lot of good stuff with the social network. Again, nailing that era and using time shifting and really unlikable characters. But I'll go with Aronofsky. I thought Black Swan was amazing. It was like he was channeling Polanski of the 70s. A horror movie, psychological thriller. I thought it was brilliant. Handheld camera. Um, well, Russell, I know, is a pain in the butt. And the fighter definitely has some good moments. But I would go with Aronofsky. I don't disagree with you. I still, I'm still going to go with uh, the King speech. Um, but Black Swan is incredible. I think it's Natalie Portman's best movie too. All right, best actor was Colin Firth for the King speech. What else was nominated? Javier Bardem for Beautiful, Jeffrey uh, Jeff Bridges for True Grit, Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network, and James Franco for 127 Hours. I don't think I got through Beautiful. I think I tried to find it somewhere. I never got through it. Javier Bardem. Bridges and True Grid, I don't think is anything special. Again, that's a ridiculous nomination. Eisenberg is at the height of his career as Mark Zuckerberg. Very creepy and alienating. His best part of the movie, the first 10 minutes, is tremendous. Great script by Sorkin, and the way Eisenberg delivers it is so well done. Franco, only nomination, if I'm not mistaken, was for 127 hours, and he's very good. But this is a landslide, Joe. This is a rout. Colin Firth absolutely playing King George the Sixth. He does such a good job at becoming a king as the country is going through the crisis of World War II and entering that while he's also going through this huge personal crisis of a stutter in with you know radio becoming a thing and being able to dress people by the masses. He nails it. I absolutely love his performance. It's amazing. Awesome. All right, best actress. Again, Natalie Portman, no-brainer, but what else was nominated? Annette Benning for The Kids Are All Right, Nicole Kidman, Rabbit Hole, Jennifer Lawrence for Winter's Bone, and Michelle Williams for Blue Valentine. And normally with movies, you always think of like the adult film title. Winter's Bone already has the adult film title in addition to the original title. Notable for the fact Jennifer Lawrence, that was her breakthrough performance. I'm glad she got nominated for Best Actress, and of course she's been nominated four times. Never should have been nominated for Joy, which is ridiculous. But uh, Michelle Williams, fantastic in Blue Valentine. Underrated movie. If you haven't seen it, and you like a good tortured romance movie, her and Ryan Gosling are excellent in Blue Valentine. But again, Portman in a route, Joe. This is an easy one. Portman in a route. Black Swan for sure. I agree with the Academy. Supporting actor was Christian Bale for The Fighter. Speaking of overacting, I'm not as crazy about this performance as other people. I thought he was wildly overacting. I think it's a good performance, but I do not think he should have won. Who else was nominated? John Hawks for Winter's Bone, Jeremy Renner for The Town, Mark Ruffalo for The Kids Are All Right, and Jeffrey Rush, The King's Speech. Well, I'll tell you, to me, it's a, it's a lot of B-plus here. Jeremy Renner is really a lot of fun in The Town. I'm glad he got nominated. Ty Burr, the great film critic with Boston Globe, who loves film noirs like me, he said Ben Affleck in the town is channeling Bogart and Renner is straight up Cagney, which is one of the greatest lines ever in a review I've ever read. Renner's really good. Ruffalo, I love. I didn't think the kids are all right. It was anything special, but I love Ruffalo. I would have liked to see him win an Oscar at some point. But again, Joe and I are in love with the King speech. I would go with Jeffrey Rush as Lionel Logue. This is not an easy role to play, but he's charming and funny and thoughtful and intelligent. Bale in the fighter, I mean, he does those googly eyes every single time with the fact he's on drugs. It was too much for me as Dickie Eklund. To me, it was one of those roles that always gets recognized by the Academy, kind of like Joaquin Phoenix in Joker. Are you acting or is it the most acting? Uh, Hawks and Winter's Boat, I'm surprised he got nominated. Again, indie movie. I knew J-Law got nominated. I forgot he got nominated. He's a good actor. I loved him in Three Billboards. That's in Ebbing, Missouri, playing Francis McDormand's ex-husband. But again, this should have been Jeffrey Rush. 
I think, and walk with me here, but I feel like Jeffrey Rush's performance in the King speech is like the rug that brings the movie together. And without it, the room just <laughs> looks different, you know? Uh, best supporting actress and actress I love, Melissa Leo. She won for The Fighter. I love her because The Homicide Life in the Streets are my favorite shows. And she played Detective Kay Adams on the show. But who else was nominated that year? Amy Adams for The Fighter. Helen Obama Carter for The Kink Speech. Haley Steinfeld, pop star for True Grit. And Jackie Weaver for Animal Kingdom. Jackie Weaver is quite the villain in Animal Kingdom. And we're talking about succession and villains and Brian Cox playing an aging patriarch. Well, she's the aging matriarch. And she's, <laughs> she's having fun in Animal Kingdom playing a really, really bad woman. Other than that, though, not really strong performances. Melissa Leo, like I said, because I like her a lot. And the fighter did have strong performances. I mean, listen, they got, everybody got nominated except for Wahlberg. Poor guy. He's the guy that put the whole damn movie together. He doesn't get nominated. I'm happy that Melissa Leo won. I, I like that nomination. I'll, I'll continue on the King speech trend and go with Helen Obama Carter, but Melissa Leo in The Fighter, I feel like that should deserve something, so I don't disagree with that either. Original screenplay, you and I both agree. It's the King speech. Uh, I'd forgotten that David Seidler actually wrote the script. Who else was nominated? Another Year, The Fighter, Inception, and The Kids Are All Right. Listen, Kids Are All Right. I like seeing any movies break through like that. Lesbian Romance, Annette Benning, Julianne Moore. It's a good movie. Nice to see the script nominated. Inception, as I said before, I love Christopher Nolan, but I still don't understand what the hell the movie was about. And The Fighter, it's good to see sports movies break through. So that's nice to see that the, that kind of nomination. Mike Lee, the Academy loves him. His movies are not for everybody. They're often dark and despairing, but he's a great writer. But again, for me and Joe, this is a no-brainer, David Seidler. 110%. Yep. King speech for sure. Best adapted screenplay. The great Aaron Sorkin wins for Social Network. Who else was nominated? 127 Hours, Toy Story 3, True Grit, and Winter's Bone. Well, if I'm going to say Toy Story 3 should have won Best Picture, I might as well give Toy Story 3 Best Adapted Screenplay. It's tough to go against Sorkin, and this may be his best script. I think Steve Jobs is also excellent, didn't get nearly as much love, certainly commercially, as The Social Network did. But, I mean, that first 10 minutes alone, where Eisenberg is getting chewed up by that girl... And she's telling him what a jerk he is. I mean, that, that is rat-a-tat Sorkin at its best. For him to streamline the story of Facebook and to take that entire book and take it as a script is just what a brilliant writer he is. Uh, ben Mesrick is the guy who wrote The Accidental Billionaires. But honestly, anime movies never get loved. Toy Story 3, when Andy's got to say goodbye to his toys, try to watch that and not get a tear in your eye. Toy Story 3. Toy Story 3 is incredible. I can't believe this is the week where, I, where you're choosing the animated movies and I'm doing uh, Social Network because that's going to be my choice. I, I, th- I think it's really good. And I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan um, and his writing, so I will, I'll, I'll go with the Social Network for sure. All right. Well, I think out of most years, this is probably the year that Joe and I agree with the Academy the most. We agree with King's Speech. We agree with Colin Firth. We agree with Natalie Portman. We agree with Melissa Leo. We agree with King's Speech original screenplay. So, hey, Academy, you guys crushed it back in 2011 and the films from 2010. Thank you, as always, for checking out Cinephile. Please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts where you can rate and review. Really appreciate all of you and all of your support in this time of need. Go, go, Joe E. You can start following my man, Joe Engelbrecht. And as always, I'll see you at the movies.